Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Irvin C. Gurley. He's a professor of medicine and endocrinology at University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And he's doing some type 1 diabetes research. So we're going to talk about that. Ivan, thanks for coming. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I see in your bio that you received a, a large grant recently from a National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. So that's great. I hope that, uh, you know, that funds your research and it goes well. Yes, yes. We are actually quite a bit into that project already. Okay. And essential for any research is that you have to find funding for it. So it's always a relief every time uh, we get another grant. Excellent. Well, tell me about your research and then maybe tell me about, if you can, the specific grant focus of the research. Sure. So I'm uh, working and doing research in uh, type 1 diabetes, or also called insulin-dependent diabetes. Others have called it juvenile-onset diabetes. It tends to be uh, occurring in young people, and it is uh, usually not associated with overweight, but rather it's associated with uh, what we call autoimmune disease, which is when the immune system, which usually helps protect us against bacteria and viruses, fights off infections for us when it suddenly makes a mistake and uh, begins looking at the insulin-producing cells in our bodies, uh, which are called the beta cells, uh, looking at those as foreign and starts destroying uh, those cells, even though they are not foreign. Um, so what's your particular angle of attack here in the research? So we have for a long time been uh, well aware of that the immune system is doing something here uh, that it shouldn't be. Um, what we not have had um, less understanding of is that why exactly does the immune system make this mistake? Uh, the immune system is usually very good at uh, deciding uh, what is foreign and what is not foreign, and it attacks those things that are foreign, and it leaves uh, our own tissues alone. Uh, so why is it that in some children and young people, uh, the immune system makes these mistakes and says, okay, these insulin-producing beta cells, I'm going to destroy them. And there are sort of two possibilities. One is there's something wrong with the immune system, but there's also the possibility there's something wrong with those cells. So uh, a lot of work has been done studying the immune system and, and what is it that goes wrong and how can we try to block those things? But perhaps less has been done about uh, looking into, is there something wrong with these uh, beta cells in these individuals? And is that why the immune system makes this mistake? What, um, it seems like there's a latency period between you know birth and people are born with this. Um, I mean, do you think they're born with it? And there's just a latency until the immune system turns on the beta cells? Or 
does it develop for some other reason that it's not necessarily uh, innate? Well, it there is. Uh, we know from studies in in monozygotic twins that even there, when you have a complete uh, identity genetically, there's actually just slightly less than a fifty percent concordance rate. So it's not uh, always that two completely identical. Uh, genetically identical twins get the same disease. So there are certainly some environmental factors that seems to be playing on a genetic susceptibility. And, and if you are unlucky enough to have a sufficient number of uh, predisposing genes uh, and you encounter an environmental trigger, uh, then we get uh, this autoimmunity going. So any idea on what uh, what the very beginning of the condition looks like? I mean, later on, I'm sure we know more, but has anyone looked longitudinally at what happens in the pancreas and, you know, what other downstream well, effects or comorbidities occur? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's very difficult, of course, uh, to study this in humans. We have some decent animal models, but uh, there are also a lot of differences between animal models and humans. So one thing that really has helped has been Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation set up this organization called NPOT, uh, and they are collecting organ donations uh, from humans who either have diabetes or are at high risk of getting diabetes, and then of course also control issues. So, so actually studying what happens in the pancreas of a human being has not really been uh, possible until recently. And, and, and it has been with this resource that it's been possible to really make big studies. Uh, and a lot of different investigators are looking at those same organ donor tissues, studying different things. It probably is something may happen early uh, way before you become a clinically type 1 diabetic patient, there is autoimmunity going on. And, and uh, we can certainly, we have been able to study people looking at their blots and looking for uh, signs of autoimmunity. And we have found that those things can occur easily five, 10 years before you become diabetic. So there's a, a long drawn process of disease uh, but what I've been interested in is what is it that provokes the immune system? The very first provocation before you have any autoimmunity going on, what's going on at that time? Um, and we have been able to use these uh, organ uh, donor tissues to study and see what, what is going on there. And, and we have seen indications that there is stress in this tissue even way before anyone would have become diabetic and, and uh, uh, just at the time when they have maybe one autoantibody, so one little indication of autoimmunity, uh, there's stress in their tissue. What, what kind of antibodies are produced and do they change over time? Like what's been observed? So uh, the antibodies we are using to diagnose autoimmunity to beta cells are antibodies that, that basically are specific for beta cells, or only occur in a few tissues, uh, including beta cells. Uh, so that's what we are seeing in, in the serum of individuals. And we've done family studies and looked at 
someone who's at risk because their family have type one diabetes and they have these high risk genes and they've been followed year after year after year. And, and, and we're seeing that they will develop uh, these autoantibodies uh, indicating that there's autoimmunity to their beta cells. Of course, insulin is the major hormone producing, produced by the beta cells and it's the, the lack of insulin that gives you diabetes. And, and we can see insulin autoantibodies develop uh, very, way before someone become diabetic. Uh, there's uh, a protein called glutamic acid decarboxylase. So there are several different types of antibodies. And the more you get of them, uh, the more likely you are that, that you will become diabetic. And, and the sooner it will happen, uh, the more antibodies build up. So um, over time, you see an increase in antibodies. Do you see the appearance of new types of antibodies or they stay the same throughout the whole course of disease? It tends to be that if, if you develop one specific antibody, that will stay there until the time of diagnosis. You may then pick up another antibody uh, and you may pick up a third antibody. So, so you, you sort of you get one and it sort of stays there. It might go a little bit in and out and in and out, but it tends to be there throughout the, the pre-diabetes stage. And then eventually when you become diabetic, it's because most of your antibodies or most of your beta cells have been uh, destroyed. And after diagnosis, uh, a lot of individuals then lose their antibodies. Uh, and, and it probably is because there simply isn't much of anything to stimulate uh, the production of these antibodies after most of your beta cells have been destroyed. Have people been able to look at the structure of the antibodies and then back calculate what caused, you know, what, what would bind to the antibodies? Like the antigens themselves, do we know what they are that are either presented on the cell membrane or given off by the beta cells? Yes, but interestingly enough, uh, we actually don't think the antibodies are as important for the pathology, but they are very good markers. Probably most of the destruction is coming from another part of the immune system, the T lymphocytes, but they have been really good for epidemiological studies because they do very well seem to indicate something is going wrong inside this person's pancreas. And it's, it's not possible to take biopsies from a pancreas. It's just too dangerous. So the only way we can really follow what happens in the pancreas is by these indirect biomarkers uh, in the form of autoantibodies. Um, but we kind of then in my work where I'm more interested in well, like, what exactly is going on in the beta cells, uh, it's been uh, really good to have these uh, organ donor banks with large uh, numbers of uh, pancreas available uh, for our studies. So Okay, so you can't do biopsies, so I guess you'd have to get cadaver beta cells. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the only way we can do it, yes. It is... Uh, uh, unfortunately, it, taking a biopsy from a pancreas, uh, it carries a number of risks to the individual. So it's not something we can do. Uh, the I way thought that you could, uh, some people are, have a pluripotent stem cells. They can differentiate into beta cells to study them. Yes, and there are also beta cell lines, but it's very 
difficult to get those to really mimic what's going on in a whole human being. Uh, so we can get some information about uh, beta cells and how they respond to different things uh, using uh, cell lines, uh, some derived from stem cells and others from tumors, etc. But we really kind of like to study these cells in their natural environment. Uh, and, and that means either going to animal models or try to get uh, organ donor material. Okay, so I have a little bit better picture now. So what, what specifically are you trying to pick apart and figure out, if you could restate it? So uh, we have had uh, for many years uh, the idea that maybe certain viruses would be involved in creating this uh, stress in the beta cells and that that's what initially get the immune system to be interested in the beta cells and then start producing this unfortunate autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. So there's been some epidemiological studies indicating that maybe there's a connection between viruses and, and uh, initiation of autoimmunity. And there's even been animal models used. But uh, we have kind of said, well, we need to look at stress in islets, in, beta, uh, uh, in the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans. So we want to collect these islets from people who are at high risk of becoming diabetic, seem to be in the early process or in the late process. Uh, so what are the overall gene expression signatures? And, and the novel technologies allows us to basically take out a piece of tissue and get an answer on how many genes and at how, how high a level are these genes expressed. So then we can do comparative uh, studies and we can say, well, what's the difference between an islet that seems to be under immune attack and one that is not? And are there in, in individuals where we clearly have initiated the process, does a normal looking islet look different from a normal looking islet in an individual where we have no indication at all that there's a process going on? So that's what we've been doing. We have been taking this tissue then we have cut out individual islets, and then we have looked at their global gene expression patterns, and then tried to connect uh, differences in global gene expression patterns with uh, indicators either that of disease, uh, quote unquote, in the islet itself, or uh, with no knowledge about the uh, organ donor that there might have been uh, initiation and early stages of a disease process. So, I mean, what have you observed so far? Have you had access to beta cell lines and, you know, uh, so, healthy ones? And have you been able to look at the differences? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes, and we have actually found, interestingly enough, that does seem to be uh, some indications in the individuals that have uh, early markers of, of, of a disease process, that there are indications of a viral infections. So tissue will normally respond to a viral infection by turning on a number of genes that are effective at trying to fight off a virus. So we have sort of that uh, footprint of a virus by looking at, at the tissue's uh, expression of, of certain stress genes. And some of them are very specific to uh, specific types of infection, and some of them are sort of generalized infection markers. So we have found both generalized infection markers as well as 
uh, some that are very specific to double-stranded RNA viruses. We found these indicators both at the very early stages of autoimmunity and also later stages of autoimmunity. And when we look at the islets that look completely normal uh, in a, a person that had no indication at all of, of autoimmunity versus those in individuals that have very early indicators of autoimmunity, we are seeing a difference in these genes that would suggest that there might be a close correlation between the disease process and responses uh, that are associated with viral infections. Okay, is it, uh, so you're seeing differences on a genetic level, which would you know, seem to say that a person is born with a propensity towards this condition, or are you seeing also epigenetic changes? So you're looking at methylation and other marks so we've not looked at the methylation, but we do know that, that there are genetic susceptibilities uh, to this disease. So uh, individuals uh, with certain genes are much more likely to uh, develop this disease than individuals with other genes. And there's been family tracing studies to identify uh, with what genes, when, when they are transferred to the next generation, which one of the, the, these genes seem to transfer the susceptibility to the type 1 autoimmune diabetes. So we know a fair amount of that, and we know that there are amongst these that the very strongest genetic association is with immune response genes, the HLA complex in the human genome. If, if you have certain specific variations, genetic variations in, that, uh, in those genes, uh, you are much more likely to develop autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And there's also a, actually a gene that is associated with type 1 diabetes genetically uh, with susceptibility. That specific gene we have found to also be uh, overexpressed in the islets uh, of Langerhans and, and in, the, in the beta cells there in people who are in the early stages of these disease. So when you say you see genetic differences, does that mean that uh, I don't know the genes are upregulated to, to start? No, or maybe it, they, you, know, you know they're more sensitive to upregulation or overactivity. We don't know for sure, but the general genetic susceptibility is is basically the base pairs, the sequence of that DNA that all of your cells have. So there's variations in that, and and we can sort of follow. Uh, specific variations uh, where the code has been changed uh, uh, one or two places. Uh, and we can say, well, if, is that change associated with being more likely to become a type 1 diabetic? Then we can also, of course, look at gene expression levels. And, and that's what my study has done, uh, is to say, okay, when we look in the islets of Langerhans and in the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans, are there certain genes that are higher expressed? Uh, and, and that's what we are looking for uh, in my study. And, and uh, we have looked and found that a number of genes that are associated with responses to viruses, that they are upregulated. So they are expressed at a higher level uh, in people that are in the early stages of developing type 1 diabetes. Has anyone looked at uh, people with type 2 diabetes and sequenced the islets to see if there's similar genetic changes or again, epigenetic changes at that time, uh, maybe yeah, that, cancer? That's, we have actually also, as sort of as a control 
for comparison, we have also looked at islets from uh, individuals with type 2 diabetes. We have to do that because some of the gene expression changes may simply be because of blood sugar fluctuations. Uh, so there, the type 2 diabetics uh, would sort of help us define what are the genes that are changing because of blood sugars and what are the ones changing because of autoimmunity. Uh, so yeah, we have looked at that and, and, and we have found that there are some other types of, of changes uh, in type 2 diabetes than in type 1 diabetes. Oh, and can you correlate whether there's changes in, uh, again, related to a relationship to the immune system or just because of the the sugar load or the insulin load, the demand for production, that it changes yeah. the cells in a different way. Yes, yeah, so, so that's what we use those. So we have Ida's Langerhans and beta cells from normal people with no diabetes, no indication whatsoever of autoimmunity. Then we have from individuals that have indication of autoimmunity, but no diabetes. Then we have from individuals that, are, that have autoimmune type one diabetes. And then we have from individuals that have non-autoimmune type two diabetes. So with those groups, we can start sort of sorting out what is because of diabetes or blood sugar fluctuation and what is because of the autoimmune. Does there appear to be any immune response in type two? I know that's not your field, but is there any, any correlation or? Uh, we are not seeing much in, at the level of the islets. Uh, we do know from other people's studies uh, that there is uh, probably inflammation is associated with type two diabetes, but it's by another mechanism. It's not affecting the islets directly. It's, it's basically causing what's called insulin resistance in tissue like muscles and fat and liver. Uh, and that's uh, part of what is causing type two diabetes where you have still have plenty of beta cells and in some patients even more than normal numbers of, of beta cells. It's just that they produce insulin that just doesn't work because of what we call insulin resistance in these type two diabetics. And it looks like uh, inflammation uh, is causing in insulin resistance. Well, I've heard insulin actually as a, you know, it's, I guess I don't really know if it's a protein, but it it appears to have a folding component in order to make it functionally effective. Is there any misfolding of insulin when uh, beta cells are under high demand for production or in type one? And could that be identified as a uh, something attackable by the immune system? Yes, yes, absolutely. There, there's definitely when a cell comes under stress, doesn't do as well uh, producing good functional uh, proteins. And, and insulin is a protein. It's a peptide protein that's secreted into the circulation, and then it goes out in the tissues uh, via the blood and, and does its thing. And yes, there is uh, certainly when you put more and more stress on a beta cell, it produces more uh, defective, uh, deformed, inefficient insulin. And, and there are certainly reasons to believe that, that those proteins, that those uh, defective insulins can become targets for immune responses. Um, they might be oxidized or other things by the inflammatory processes uh, in a stressed beta cell. Yeah, what, what happens when a, a beta cell is stressed? You said it doesn't do well, but like, what does that mean? Does it 
again, does it create defective insulin? Does it not convert pro-insulin properly? Does it, I mean, like what, what happens? It probably doesn't process as well. So uh, there has been studies suggesting that we get more pro-insulin released. And pro-insulin is sort of a unprocessed product of the insulin gene. Uh, so stressed beta cells seem to be releasing a higher proportion of pro-insulin, which suggests that, that they are not quite capable of doing the job. There is probably some of the problems with when we get autoantibodies to insulin, they might have initially uh, originated from pro-insulin autoantibodies. So if you go further in the gene discovery, what, what is this going to tell you to do? What kind of therapies does it suggest? We're looking into what are the stress pathways that seem to be activated when these beta cells start going downhill. And, and if we can identify that, uh, we would have pathways that could be targeted with specific drugs. So if, if we can fully understand some of these uh, stresses, maybe we can uh, design drugs that can help the stressed cells by biochemical means. So, so that's certainly a, a, is, is one pathway whereby this could end up in uh, uh, treatments uh, helpful for uh, patients. The other thing is if, if it turns out that a large number of uh, uh, individuals that the first steps are viral infections, maybe if we can identify some of these viruses, uh, we can uh, end up uh, with vaccines for them. Uh, and there is uh, already a study uh, in Europe uh, that is trying to vac- uh, come up with a vaccine for a, a specific uh, Coxsackie virus uh, that is believed to be uh, a possible uh, precipitant of, of type 1 diabetes. Uh, so, so those kind of things, if we can show that this is really where the whole thing starts, then we can make the argument that maybe we should develop vaccines to try and, and help protect individuals so that they never get this autoimmune process going. Well, if you look at the uh, like the stress the stress hypothesis, maybe that's why uh, there's a latency period that's variable for different people. People that you know, uh, starting with what you found, their genes are different. They're predisposed to type one. Maybe they're you know, the beta cells are more subject to stress, you know, variance in glucose levels and other factors. Therefore, they are stressed to a larger degree and earlier on, and they collapse. So this revert to this state that triggers autoimmunity. And maybe that's part of the, maybe that's how the cascade happened. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, there are a number of hypotheses uh, and and uh, we are trying to, to sort of look and create data, uh, either uh, supporting or rejecting these many different possibilities. But uh, we probably are also looking at a heterogeneous disease pattern. It's possible that a number of different types of stress all could lead to precipitating the immune system attack on the, on the beta cells. Uh, and there are other uh, groups that are trying to find out, well, you know, if we can't stop it from being initiated, can we at least find some way of blocking it from progressing? Because you don't get type 1 diabetes until about 90% of your beta cells have been destroyed. Uh, so there is some room there for 
coming up with interventions so that an individual will never actually get the disease. Is there is there beta cell destruction in type two? Yes, but it's different. In type two, uh, initially, your insulin doesn't work so well, and your body is responding to that by uh, expanding your beta cell mass and producing more insulin. So your insulin levels get to be abnormally high, uh, but you that's your way of compensating for your insulin resistance. Uh, but down the road, and some believe maybe in some pe- people uh, at a very early stage, you also have deficiency uh, uh, in the beta cells. And, and whether it's individual beta cells that don't work so well, or maybe it's the beta cell mass that if you need, let's say 10 million beta cells and you only have six or seven, uh, that would make it harder for your beta cells to handle uh, the top load right after you uh, ate something very sugary. Um, and, and that could then create some stress in those uh, cells they might die simply from the stress, not from the stress-inducing autoimmunity. So, in in looking at uh, you know cadavers or you know and the, the beta cells, you don't see oversized beta cells. You just see what they just don't. They're just not there. Or do you catch yes. any that have just recently died? And can you tell what happened? So yeah, when we look in these uh, type one uh, and and high risk of type one donor we are seeing that, that the insulin staining cells have disappeared from this islet of Langerhans structure. So there are a number of different cells in the islet of Langerhans. There's a lot of insulin producing beta cells, but there are also glucagon producing cells, alpha cells, and, and some other types of cells. And in type one diabetes, it's very specifically the beta cells that produce insulin, they are gone. Uh, and, 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 uh, Depending on the states, you may find that that they are gone from only a very small number of islets, or they are gone from a very large number of islets. Hmm, that's interesting. Do they leave any behind any scarring, or are they like ghosts, and you can never, you can, they just were never there? It looks like it basically is just that they are not there. So you you can go in, you can look at the tissue, you can stain it for presence of different hormones, and you are basically seeing that this is an islet and it doesn't really stain for insulin at all. It does stain normally for other hormones like glucagon, but it's just uh, somehow the beta cells either have been diverted, turned into other types of cells, uh, or they have just been apoptosed and, and, and disappeared without leaving a scar. Yeah, that's kind of odd. It's like a mystery, you know, they're gone. They're gone, yes, that, that's for sure. And, and we are very sure that it's because of lymphocytes okay. uh, that have gone in there. We don't know for sure to what extent. Uh, it also may be because there are processes that stops the production of new beta cells. So there mm-hmm. might be several processes going there, both the, the fact that, that beta cells are being destroyed by apoptosis due to an immune attack, but it could also be that eventually the ability to keep up with that destruction and replicate and make new cells, that that is somehow being hampered. Uh, last question, is there any way to um, you know, non-permanently stain or attach fluorescent tags to beta cells inside of someone? Can they drink uh, you know, some kind of dye that preferentially 
goes to the beta cells in the pancreas and you can see them? Yes, there are actually some interesting uh, work being done by other groups, in, including one at, at Vanderbilt, uh, trying to put in dyes that would stain the beta cells and then using scans to try and measure how much beta cell volume is in the pancreas of a living human being. And they have some preliminary uh, data and, and that actually produced some interesting new insights. It turns out that there's probably a lot of difference uh, in how much beta cell, uh, how many beta cells individuals have. And, and some may have 10, 50 times as many beta cells in their pancreas as others. And then we're, here we are talking about individuals who have not become diabetic. Mm, right. Big, ver big natural variation seems to be present. Well, very good, Ivan. This is really fascinating. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Well, I would say just just look me up. <laughs> you can always find, uh, I think nowadays, uh, even Google will help you find uh, scientific articles and they can uh, learn more about my work. That well, Very good, Ivan. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.